This is Fireside Flock, a cozy reading podcast. If you want to help support the podcast and keep it ad-free, I have a Patreon, patreon.com slash firesideflock. Lydgate that evening spoke to Miss Vincy of Mrs. Casaubon and laid some emphasis on the strong feelings she appeared to have for that formal, studious man thirty years older than herself. Of course she's devoted to her husband, said Rosamond, implying a notion of necessary sequence which the scientific man regarded as the prettiest possible for a woman, but she was thinking at that same time that it was not so very melancholy to be mistress of Lowick Manor, with a husband likely to die soon. Do you think her very handsome? She certainly is handsome, but I've not thought about it, said Lydgate. I suppose it would be unprofessional, said Rosamond, dimpling, but how your practice is spreading. You were called in before to the Chettams, I think, and now the Casavans. Yes, said Lydgate, in a tone of compulsory admission. But I don't really like attending such people so well as the poor. The cases are more monotonous, and one has to go through more fuss and listen more deferentially to nonsense. Not more than in Middlemarch, said Rosamond. And at least you go through wide corridors and have the scent of rose leaves everywhere. That is true, Mademoiselle de Montmorency, said Lydgate, just bending his head to the table and lifting with his fourth finger her delicate handkerchief which lay at the mouth of her reticule, as if to enjoy its scent, while he looked at her with a smile. But this agreeable holiday freedom with which Lydgate hovered about the flower of Middlemarch could not continue indefinitely. It was not more possible to find social isolation in that town than elsewhere, and two people persistently flirting could by no means escape from the various entanglements, weights, blows, clashings, motions, by which things severally go on. Whatever Miss Vincy did must be remarked, and she was perhaps the more conspicuous to admirers and critics, because just now Mrs. Vincy, after some struggle, had gone with Fred to stay a little while at Stone Court, there being no other way of at once gratifying old Featherstone and keeping watch against Mary Garth, who appeared a less tolerable daughter-in-law in proportion as Fred's illness disappeared. Aunt Bulstrode, for example, came a little oftener into Lowick Gate to see Rosamond, now she was alone. For Mrs. Bulstrode had a true sisterly feeling for her brother, always thinking that he might have married better, but wishing well to the children. Now Mrs. Bulstrode had a long-standing intimacy with Mrs. Plymdale. They had nearly the same preferences in silks, patterns for underclothing, chinaware, and clergymen. They confided their little troubles of health and household management to each other, and various little points of superiority on Mrs. Bulstrode's aid. Side, namely, more decided seriousness, more admiration for mind, and a house outside the town, sometimes served to give color to their conversation without dividing them. Well-meaning women both, knowing very little of their own motives. Mrs. Bulstrode, paying a morning visit to Mrs. Plymdale, happened to say that she could not stay longer, because she was going to see poor Rosamond. "'Why do you say poor Rosamond?' said Mrs. Plymdale, a round-eyed, sharp little woman, like a tamed falcon. "'She's so pretty, and has been brought up in such thoughtlessness.' The mother, you know, had always that levity about her, which makes me anxious for the children. Well, Harriet, if I am to speak my mind, said Mrs. Plymdale, with emphasis, I must stay. I must say, anybody would suppose you and Mr. Bulstrode be delighted with what has happened, for you have done everything to put Mr. Lydgate forward. Selina, what do you mean? said Mrs. Bulstrode, in genuine surprise. Not but what I am truly thankful for Ned's sake said Mrs. Plymdale. He could certainly better afford to keep such a wife than some people can, but I should wish him to look elsewhere. Still, 
a mother has anxieties, and some young men would take to a bad life in consequence. Besides, if I was obliged to speak, I should say I was not fond of strangers coming into a town. I don't know, Selina, said Mrs. Bulstrode, with a little emphasis in her turn. Mr. Bulstrode was a stranger here at one time. Abraham and Moses were strangers in the land, and we are told to entertain strangers. And especially, she added, after a slight pause, when they are unexceptionable. I was not speaking in a religious sense, Harriet. I spoke as a mother. Selina, I'm sure you've had never heard me say anything against a niece of mine marrying your son. Oh, it is pride in Miss Vincy. I'm sure it is nothing else, said Mrs. Plymdale, who had never before given all her confidence to Harriet on this subject. No young man in Middlemarch was good enough for her. I've heard her mother say as much. That is not a Christian spirit, I think. But now, from all I hear, she's found a man as proud as herself. You don't mean that there's anything between Rosamond and Mr. Lydgate, said Mrs. Bulstrode, rather mortified at finding out her own ignorance. Is it possible you don't know, Harriet? Oh, I go about so little, and I'm not fond of gossip. I really never hear any. You see so many people that I don't see. Your circle's rather different from ours. Well, but your own niece and Mr. Bulstrode's great favorite, and yours too, I'm sure, Harriet. I thought at one time you meant him for Kate, when she's a little older. I don't believe there can be anything serious at present, said Mrs. Bulstrode. My brother would certainly have told me. Well, people have different ways, but I understand that nobody can see Miss Vincy and Mr. Lydgate together without taking them to be engaged. However, it is not my business. Shall I put up the pattern of mittens? After this, Mrs. Bulstrode drove to her niece with a mind newly weighted. She was herself handsomely dressed, but she noticed with a little more regret than usual that Rosamond, who was just come in and met her in walking dress, was almost as expensively equipped. Mrs. Bulstrode was a feminine, smaller edition of her brother, and had none of her husband's low-toned pallor. She had a good, honest glance and used no circumlocution. "'You are alone, I see, my dear,' she said as they entered the drawing-room together, looking round gravely. Rosamond felt sure that her aunt had something particular to say, and they sat down near each other. Nevertheless, the quilling inside Rosamond's bonnet was so charming that it was impossible not to desire the same kind of thing for Kate, and Mrs. Bulstrode's eyes, which were rather fine, rolled round that ample quilled circuit while she spoke. "'I've just heard something about you that has surprised me very much, Rosamond.' "'What is that, aunt?' Rosamond's eyes were also were roaming over her aunt's large embroidered collar. I can hardly believe it, that you should be engaged without my knowing it, without your father's telling me. Here Mrs. Bulstrode's eyes finally rested on Rosamond's, who blushed deeply and said, I am not engaged, aunt. How is it that everyone says so, then, that it is the town's talk? The town's talk is of very little consequence, I think, said Rosamond, inwardly gratified. Oh, my dear, be more thoughtful. Don't despise your neighbor so. "'Remember, you are turned twenty-two now, and you will have no fortune. "'Your father, I'm sure, will not be able to spare you anything. "'Mr. Lydgate is very intellectual and clever. "'I know there is an attraction in that. "'I like talking to such men myself, and your uncle finds him very useful. "'But the profession is a poor one here. "'To be sure, this life is not everything. "'But it is seldom a medical man has true religious views. "'There's too much pride of intellect, and you're not fit to marry a poor man.' "'Mr. Lydgate is not a poor man, aunt. "'He has very high connections.' "'He told me himself he was poor. "'That's because he's used to people who have a high style of living. "'My dear Rosamond, you must not think of living in high style.' 
Rosamond looked down and played with her reticule. She was not a fiery young lady and had no sharp answers, but she meant to live as she pleased. "'Then it is really true?' said Mrs. Bulstrode, looking very earnestly at her niece. "'You're thinking of Mr. Lydgate. There's some understanding between you, though your father doesn't know. Be open, my dear Rosamond. Mr. Lydgate has really made you an offer?' Poor Rosamond's feelings were very unpleasant. She had been quite easy as to Lydgate's feeling and intention, but now when her aunt put this question, she did not like being unable to say yes. Her pride was hurt, but her habitual control of manner helped her. "'Pray, excuse me, aunt. I would rather not speak on the subject.' "'You would not give your heart to a man without a decided prospect, I trust, my dear. And think of the two excellent offers I know of that you've refused, and one still within your reach, if you'll not throw it away.' I know a very great beauty who married badly at last by doing so. Mr. Ned Plimdale is a nice young man, some might think good-looking, and an only son, and a large business of that kind is better than a profession. Not that marrying is everything. I would have you seek first the kingdom of God, but a girl should keep her heart within her own power. I should never give it to Mr. Ned Plimdale if it were. I have already refused him. If I loved, I should love at once and without change, said Rosamond with a great sense of being a romantic heroine and playing the part prettily. "'I see how it is, my dear,' said Mrs. Bulstrode in a melancholy voice, rising to go. "'You've allowed your affections to be engaged without return.' "'No, indeed, aunt,' said Rosamond with emphasis. "'Then you're quite confident that Mr. Lydgate has a serious attachment to you?' Rosamond's cheeks by this time were persistently burning, and she felt much mortification— she chose to be silent, and her aunt went away all the more convinced. Mr. Bulstrode, in things worldly and indifferent, was disposed to do what his wife bade him, and she now, without telling her reasons, desired him on the next opportunity to find out in conversation with Mr. Lydgate whether he had any intention of marrying soon. The result was a decided negative. Mr. Bulstrode, on being cross-questioned, showed that Lydgate had spoken as no man who— as no man would who had any attachment that could issue in matrimony. Mrs. Bulstrode now felt that she had a serious duty before her, and she soon managed to arrange a tete-a-tete -tete with Lydgate, in which she passed from inquiries about Fred Vincy's health and expressions of her sincere anxiety for her brother's large family to general remarks on the dangers which lay before young people with regard to their settlement in life. Young men were often wild and disappointing, making a little return for the money spent on them, and a girl was exposed to many circumstances which might interfere with her prospects, especially when she has great attractions and her parents see much company, said Mrs. Bulstrode. Gentlemen pay her attention and engross her all to themselves for the mere pleasure of the moment, and that drives off others. I think it is a heavy responsibility, Mr. Lydgate, to interfere with the prospects of any girl. Here Mr. Mrs. Bulstrode fixed her eyes on him with an unmistakable purpose of warning, if not of rebuke. "'Clearly,' said Lydgate, looking at her, perhaps even staring a little in return. "'On the other hand, a man must be a great coxcomb to go about with the notion that he must not pay attention to a young lady, lest she should fall in love with him, or lest others should think she must. "'Oh, Mr. Lydgate, you know well what your advantages are. You know that our young men here cannot cope with you. Were you frequent a house that may militate very much against a girl's making a desirable settlement in life, and prevent her from accepting offers even if they are made?' 
Midgate was less flattered by his advantage over the Middlemarch Orlandos than he was annoyed by the perception of Mrs. Bulstrode's meaning. She felt that she had spoken as impressively as it was necessary to do, and that in using the superior, superior word militate, she had thrown a noble drapery over a mass of particulars which were still evident enough. Lydgate was fuming a little, pushed his hair back with one hand, felt curiously in his waistcoat pocket with the other, and then stooped to beckon the tiny black spaniel which had the insight to decline his hollowing caresses. It would not have been decent to go away, because he had been dining with other guests, and had just taken tea, but Mrs. Bulstrode, having no doubt that she had been understood, turned the conversation. Solemn's proverbs, I think, have omitted to say that as a sore palate findeth grit, so an uneasy consciousness heareth innuendos. The next day, Mr. Fairbrother, parting from Lydgate in the street, supposed that they should meet at Vincy's in the evening. Lydgate answered curtly, No, he had work to do. He must give up going out in the evening. What? You were going to get lashed to the mast, eh, and are stopping your ears, said the vicar? Well, if you don't mean to be won by the sirens, you're right to take precautions in time. A few days before, Lydgate would have taken no notice of these words as anything more than the vicar's usual way of putting things. They seemed now to convey an innuendo which confirmed the impression that he had been making a fool of himself and behaving so as to be misunderstood. Not, he believed, by Rosamond herself. She, he felt sure, took everything as lightly as he intended it. She had an exquisite tact and insight in relation to all points of manners, but the people she lived among were blunderers and busybodies. However, a mistake should go no further. He resolved and kept his resolution that he would not go to Mr. Vincy's Chapter 32 the triumphant confidence of the mayor, founded on Mr. Featherstone's insistent demand that Fred and his mother should not leave him, was a feeble emotion compared with all that was agitating the breasts of the old man's blood relations, who naturally manifested more their sense of the family tie, and were more visibly numerous now that he had become bedridden. Naturally, for when poor Peter had occupied his armchair in the wainscoted parlor, no assiduous beetles for whom the cook prepares boiling water could have been less welcome on a hearth, which they had reasons for preferring than those persons whose featherstone blood was ill-nourished, not from penuriousness on their part, but from poverty. Brother Solomon and Sister Jane were rich, and the family candor and total abstinence from false politeness with which they were always received seemed to them no argument that their brother in the solemn act of making his will would overlook the superior claims of wealth. Themselves, at least, he had never been unnatural enough to banish from his house, and it seemed hardly eccentric that he should have kept away Brother Jonah, Sister Martha, and the rest who had no shadow of such claims. They knew Peter's maxim. That money was a good egg and should be laid in a warm nest. But Brother Jonah, Sister Martha, and all the needy exiles held a different point of view. Probabilities are as various as the faces to be seen at will in fretwork or paper hangings. Every form is there, from Jupiter to Judy, if you only look with creative inclination. To the poor and least favored, it seemed likely that since Peter had done nothing for them in his life, he would remember them at the last. Jonah argued that men liked to make a surprise of their wills, while Martha said that nobody need be surprised if he left the best part of his money to those who least expected it. Also, it was not to be thought but that an own brother lying there with dropsy in his legs might come to feel that blood was thicker than water, and if he didn't alter his will, he might have money by him. At any rate, some blood relations should be on the premises and on the watch against those who were hardly relations at all. Such things had been known as forged wills and disputed wills, which seemed to have the golden hazy advantage of somehow enabling non-legatees to live out of them. Again, those who were no blood relations might be caught making away with things, and poor Peter, lying there, 
Hopeless. Somebody should be on the watch. But in this conclusion, they were at one with Solomon and Jane, also some nephews, nieces, and cousins, arguing with still greater subtlety as to what might be done by a man able to will away his property and give himself large treats of oddity, felt in a handsome sort of way that there was a family interest to, to be attended to, and thought of Stone Court as a place which it might be nothing but right for them to visit. Sister Martha, otherwise Mrs. Cranch, living with some wheeziness in the chalky flats, could not undertake the journey, but her son, as being poor Peter's own nephew, could represent her advantageously and watch lest his uncle Jonah should make an unfair use of the improbable things which seemed likely to happen. In fact, there was a general sense running in the Featherstone blood that everybody must watch everybody else, and that it would be well for everybody else to reflect that the Almighty was watching him. Thus, Stone Court continually saw one or other blood relation alighting or departing, and Mary Garth had the unpleasant task of carrying their messages to Mr. Featherstone, who would see none of them, and sent her down with the still more unpleasant task of telling them so. As manager of the household, she felt bound to ask them in a good provincial fashion to stay and eat, but she chose to consult Mrs. Vincy on the point of extra downstairs consumption now that Mr. Featherstone was laid up. Oh, my dear, you must do things handsomely where there's last illness in a property. God knows, I don't grudge them every ham in the house, only save the best for the funeral. Have some stuffed veal always and a fine cheese and cut. You must expect to keep open house in these last illnesses, said liberal Mrs. Vincy, once more of cheerful note and bright plumage. But some of the visitors alighted and did not depart after the handsome treating to veal and ham. Brother Jonah, for example, they were such unpleasant people in most families. Perhaps even in the highest aristocracy there are brobdingning specimens, gigantically in debt and bloated at greater expense. Brother Jonah, I say, having come down in the world, was mainly supported by a calling which he was modest enough not to boast of, though it was much better than swindling either on exchange or turf, but which did not require his presence at Brassing so long as he had a good corner to sit in and a supply of food. He chose the kitchen corner, partly because he liked it best, and partly because he did not want to sit with Solomon, concerning whom he had a strong brotherly opinion. Seated in a famous armchair and in his best suit, constantly within sight of good cheer, he had a comfortable consciousness of being on the premises, mingled with fleeting suggestions of Sunday and the bar at the Green Man, and he informed Mary Garth that he should not go out of reach of his brother Peter while that poor fellow was above ground. The troublesome ones in a family are usually either the wits or the idiots. Jonah was the wit among the Featherstones and joked with the maidservants when they came about the hearth, but seemed to consider Miss Garth a suspicious character and followed her with cold eyes. Mary would have borne this one pair of eyes with comparative ease, but unfortunately there was young Cranch, who, having come all the way from the chalky flats to represent his mother and watch his uncle Jonah, also felt it his duty to stay and to sit chiefly in the kitchen to give his uncle company. Young Cranch was not exactly the balancing point between the wit and the idiot, verging slightly towards the latter type and squinting so as to leave everything in doubt about his sentiments except that they were not of a forcible character. When Mary Garth entered the kitchen and Mr. Jonah Featherstone began to follow her with his cold detective eyes, young Cranch, turning his head in the same direction, seemed to insist on it that she should remark how he was squinting, as if he did it with design, the gypsies when Barrow read the New Testament to them. This was rather too much for poor Mary. Sometimes it made her bilious, sometimes it upset her gravity. One day that she had an opportunity, she could not resist describing the kitchen scene to Fred, who would not be hindered from immediately going to see it, affecting simply to pass through. But no sooner did he face the four eyes than he had to rush through the nearest door which happened to lead to the dairy, 
and there under the high roof and among the pans he gave way to laughter, which made a hollow resonance perfectly audible in the kitchen. He fled by another doorway, but Mr. Jonah, who had not before seen Fred's white complexion, long legs, and pinched delicacy of face, prepared many sarcasms in which these points of appearance were wittily combined with the lowest moral attributes. "'Why, Tom, you don't wear such gentlemanly trousers. You haven't got half such fine long legs,' said Jonah to his nephew, winking at the same time, to imply that there was something more in these statements than their undeniableness. Tom looked at his legs, but left it uncertain whether he preferred his moral advantages to a more vicious length of limb and reprehensible gentility of trouser. In the large, wainscoted parlor, too, there were constantly pairs of eyes on the watch, and own relatives eager to be sitters up. Many came, lunched, and departed, but Brother Solomon and the lady who had been Jane Featherstone for twenty-five years before she was Mrs. Wall found it good to be there every day for hours without other calculable occupation than that of observing the cunning Mary Garth, who was so deep that she could be found out in nothing, and giving occasional dry, wrinkly indications of crying, as if capable of torrents in a wetter season, at the thought that they were not allowed to go into Mr. Featherstone's room. But the old man's dislike of his own family seemed to get stronger as he got less able to amuse himself by saying biting things to them. Too languid to sting, he had the more venom refluent in his blood. Not fully believing the message sent through Mary Garth, they had presented themselves together within the door of the bedroom, both in black, Mrs. Wall having a white handkerchief partially unfolded in her hand, and both with faces in a sort of half-mourning purple, while Mrs. Vincy, with her pink cheeks and pink ribbons flying, was actually administering a cordial to their own brother, and the light-complexioned Fred, his short hair curling as might be expected in a gambler's, was lolling at his ease in a large chair. Old Featherstone no sooner caught sight of these funereal figures appearing in spite of his orders than rage came to strengthen him more successfully than the cordial. He was propped up on a bedrest and always had his golden-headed stick lying by him. He seized it now and swept it backwards and forwards in as large an area as he could, apparently to ban these ugly specters, crying in a hoarse sort of screech, Back! Back, Mrs. Wall! Back, Solomon! Oh, brother, Peter, Mrs. Wall began, but Solomon put his hand before her repressingly. He was a large-cheeked man, nearly seventy, with small, furtive eyes, and was not only of much blander temper, but thought himself much deeper than his brother Peter. Indeed, not likely to be deceived in any of his fellow men, inasmuch as they could not well be more greedy and deceitful than he suspected them of being. Even the invisible powers, he thought, were likely to be soothed by a bland parenthesis here and there, coming from a man of property, who might have been as impoious as others. "'Brother Peter,' he said in a wheedling yet gravely official tone, "'it's nothing but right I should speak to you about the three Crofts and the Manganese. "'The Almighty knows what I've got on my mind.' "'Then he knows more than I want to know,' said Peter, "'lying down his stick with a show of truce, which had a thread in it too, "'for he reversed the stick, so as to make the gold handle a club "'in case of closer fighting, and looked hard at Solomon's bald head. "'There's things you might repent of, brother, for want of speaking to me.' said Solomon, not advancing, however. I could sit up with you tonight, and Jane with me willingly, and you might take your own time to speak, or let me speak. Yes, I shall take my own time. You needn't offer me yours, said Peter. But you can't take your own time to die in, brother, began Mrs. Wall, with her usual woolly tone, and when you lie speechless, you may be tired of having strangers about you, and you may think of me and my children. But here her voice broke under the touching thought which she was attributing to her speechless brother the mention of ourselves being naturally affecting. No, I shan't, said old Featherstone, contradictiously. I shan't think of any of you. I've made my will, I tell you, I've made my will. 
Pierre turned his head toward Mrs. Vincy and swallowed some more of his cordial. Some people would be ashamed to fill up a place belonging by rights to others, said Mrs. Wall, turning her narrow eyes in the same direction. Oh, sister, said Solomon with ironical softness, you and me are not fine and handsome and clever enough. We must be humble and let smart people push themselves before us. Fred's spirit could not bear this. Rising and looking at Mr. Featherstone, he said, Shall my mother and I leave the room, sir, that you may be alone with your friends? Sit down, I tell you, said old Featherstone snappishly. Stop where you are. Goodbye, Solomon, he added, trying to wield his stick again, but failing now that he had reversed the handle. Goodbye, Mrs. Wall. Don't you come again. I shall be downstairs, brother, whether or no, said Solomon. I shall do my duty, and it remains to be seen what the Almighty will allow. Yes, yes, and property going out of families, said Mrs. Wall in continuation, and where there's steady young men to carry on, but I pity them who are not such, and I pity their mothers. Goodbye, brother Peter. Remember, I'm the eldest after you, brother, and prospered from the first just as you did, and have got land already by the name of Featherstone, said Solomon, relying much on that reflection, as one which might be suggested in the watches of the night but I bid you goodbye for the present. Their exit was hastened by their seeing old Featherstone pull his wig on each side and shut his eyes with his mouth-widening grimace as if he were determined to be deaf and blind. Nonetheless, they came to Stone Court daily and sat below at the post of duty, sometimes carrying on a slow dialogue in an undertone in which the observation and response were so far apart that anyone hearing them might have imagined himself listening to speaking automata and some doubt whether the ingenious mechanism would really work or wind itself up for a long time in order to stick and be silent. Solomon and Jane would have been sorry to be quick. What that led to might be seen on the other side of the wall in the person of Brother Jonah. But their watch in the wainscoted parlor was sometimes varied by the presence of other guests, from far or near. Now that Peter Featherstone was upstairs, his property could be discussed with all that local enlightenment to be found on the spot. Some rural and Middlemarch neighbors expressed much agreement with the family and sympathy with their interest against the Vincies and feminine visitors were even moved to tears in conversation with Mrs. Wall when they recalled the fact that they themselves had been disappointed in times past by codicils and marriages for spite on the part of ungrateful elderly gentlemen who, it might have been supposed, had been spared for something better. Such conversation passed suddenly, like an organ when the bellows are let drop, if Mary Garth came into the room, and all eyes were turned on her as a possible legatee, or one who might get access to iron chests but the younger men who were relatives or connections of the family were disposed to admire her in this problematic light as a girl who showed much conduct and who among all the chances that were flying might turn out to be at least a moderate prize. Hence she had her share of compliments and polite attentions, especially for Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, a distinguished bachelor and auctioneer of those parts, much concerned in the sale of land and cattle, a public character indeed, whose name was seen on widely distributed placards, and who might reasonably be sorry for those who did not know of him. He was second cousin to Peter Featherstone, and had been treated by him with more amenity than any other relative, being useful in matters of business. And in that program of his funeral, which the old man had himself dictated, he had been named as bearer. There was no odious cupidity in Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, nothing more than a sincere sense of his own merit, which, he was aware, in case of rivalry, might tell against competitors so that if Peter Featherstone, who so far as he, Trumbull, was concerned, had behaved like a good a soul as ever breathed, should have done anything handsome by him, all he could say was that he had never fished and fawned, 
but it had advised him to the best of his experience, which now extended over twenty years from the time of his apprenticeship at fifteen, and was likely to yield a knowledge of no surreptitious kind. His admiration was far from being confined to himself, but was accustomed professionally as well as privately to delight in estimating things at a high rate. He was an amateur of superior phrases and never used poor language without immediately correcting himself, which was fortunate as he was rather loud and given to predominate, standing or walking about frequently, pulling down his waistcoat with the air of a man who was very much of his own opinion, trimming himself rapidly with his forefinger and marking each new series in these movements by a busy play with his large seals. There was occasionally a little fierceness in his demeanor, but it was directed chiefly against false opinion of which there is so much to correct in the world that a man of some reading and experience necessarily has his patience tried. He felt that the Featherstone family generally was of limited understanding. But being a man of the world and a public character, took everything as a matter of course, and even went to converse with Mr. Jonah and young Cranch in the kitchen, not doubting that he had impressed the latter greatly by his leading questions concerning the chalky flats. If anybody had observed that Mr. Borthrop Trumbull, being an auctioneer, was bound to know the nature of everything, he would have smiled and trimmed himself silently with the sense that he came pretty near that. On the whole, in an auctioneering way, he was an honorable man, not ashamed of his business, and feeling that the celebrated Peel, now Sir Robert, if introduced to him, would not fail to recognize his importance. I don't mind if I have a slice of that ham and a glass of that ale, Miss Garth, if you'll allow me, he said, coming into the parlor at half-past eleven, after having had the exceptional privilege of seeing old Featherstone and standing with his back to the fire between Mrs. Whale and Solomon, It's not necessary for you to go out. Let me ring the bell. Thank you, said Mary. I have an errand. Well, Mr. Trumbull, you're highly favored, said Mrs. Wall. What? Seeing the old man? said the auctioneer, playing with his seals dispassionately. Ah, uh, you see, he has relied on me considerably. Here he pressed his lips together and frowned meditatively. Might anybody ask what their brother has been saying, said Solomon, in a soft tone of humility, in which he had a sense of luxurious cunning, he being a rich man and not in need of it. Oh, yes, anybody may ask, said Mr. Trumbull, with loud and good-humored, though cutting sarcasm, anybody may interrogate, anyone may give their remarks an interrogative turn, he continued, his sonorousness rising with his style. This is constantly done by good speakers, even when they anticipate no answer. It is what we call a figure of speech, speech at a high figure, as one may say. The eloquent auctioneer smiled at his own ingenuity. I shouldn't be sorry to hear he'd remembered you, Mr. Trumbull, said Solomon. I never was against the deserving. It's the undeserving I'm against. Ah, there it is, you see, there it is, said Mr. Trumbull significantly. It can't be denied that undeserving people have been legatees, and even residuary legatees. It is so, with testamentary dispositions. Again, he pursed up his lips and frowned a little. Do you mean to say for certain, Mr. Trumbull, that my brother has left his land away from our family? Said Mrs. Whale, on whom, as an unhopeful woman, these long words had a depressing effect. A man might as well turn his land into charity land at once as leave it to some people, observed Solomon, his sister's question having drawn no answer. What, blue coat land? Said Mrs. Wall again. Oh, Mr. Trumbull, you never can mean to say that. It would be flying in the face of the Almighty that's prospered him. While Mrs. Wall was speaking, Mr. Borthrop Trumbull walked away from the fireplace towards the window, patrolling with his forefinger round the inside of his stock, then along his whiskers in the curves of his hair. 
He now walked to Miss Garth's work table, opened a book which lay there, and read the title aloud with pompous emphasis, as if he were offering it for sale. Anne of Jerstein, pronounced Jerstein, or the Maiden of the Mist, by the author of Waverley. Then, turning the page, he began sonorously, The course of four centuries has well-nigh elapsed since a series of events which are related in the following chapters took place on the continent. He pronounced the last truly admirable word with the accent of the last syllable, not as unaware of vulgar usage, but feeling that this novel delivery enhanced the sonorous beauty which his reading had given to the whole. And now the servant came in with the tray, so that the moments for answering Mrs. Wall's question had gone by safely, while she and Solomon, watching Mr. Trumbull's movements, were thinking that high learning interfered sadly with serious affairs. Mr. Borthrop Trumbull really knew nothing about old Featherstone's will, but he could hardly have been brought to declare any ignorance unless he had been arrested for misprision of treason. "'I shall take a mere mouthful of ham and a glass of ale,' he said reassuringly. "'As a man with public business, I take a snack when I can. I will back this ham,' he added, after swallowing some morsels with alarming haste, "'against any ham in the three kingdoms. In my opinion, it is better than the hams at Freshet Hall, and I think I am a tolerable judge.' "'Some don't like so much sugar in their hams,' said Mrs. Wall. But my poor brother would always have sugar. If any person demands butter, he's at liberty to do so. But God bless me, what an aroma. I should be glad to buy in that quality, I know. There is some gratification to a gentleman. Here Mr. Trumbull's voice conveyed an emotional remonstrance in having this kind of ham set on his table. He pushed aside his plate, poured out his glass of ale, and drew his chair a little forward, profiting by the occasion to look at the inner side of his legs, which he stroked approvingly. Mr. Trumbull having all those less frivolous airs and gestures which distinguish the predominant races of the North. You've an interesting work there, I see, Miss Garth, he observed when Mary re-entered. It is by the author of Waverley, that is, Sir Walter Scott. I have bought one of his works myself, a very nice thing, a very superior publication called Ivanhoe. You will not get any writer to beat him in a hurry, I think. He will not, in my opinion, be speedily surpassed. I've just been reading a portion at the commencement of Anne of Jerstein, commence as well. Things never began with Mr. Barthrop Trumbull. They always commenced, both in private life and on his handbills. You're a reader, I see. Do you subscribe to our Middlemarch library? No, said Mary. Mr. Fred Vincy brought this book. I'm a great bookman myself, returned Mr. Trumbull. I've no less than two hundred volumes in calf, and I flatter myself they are well selected. Also pictures by Murillo, Rubens, Tenier, Titian, Van Dyck, and others. Shall be happy to lend you any work you like to mention, Miss Garth. I'm much obliged, said Mary, hastening away again, but I have little time for reading. I should say my brother has done something for her in his will, said Mr. Solomon, in a very low undertone, when she had shut the door behind her, pointing with his head towards the absent Mary. His first wife is a poor match for him, though, said Mrs. Wall. She brought him nothing, and this young woman is only her niece, and very proud, and my brother has always paid her wage. "'Sensible girl, though, in my opinion,' said Mr. Trumbull, finishing his ale and starting up with an emphatic adjustment of his waistcoat. "'I've observed her when she has been mixing medicine in drops. She minds what she's doing, sir. That is a great point in a woman, and a great point for our friend upstairs, poor dear old soul. A man whose life is of any value should think of his wife as a nurse. That is what I should do if I married, and I believe I have lived single long enough not to make a mistake in that line. Some men must marry to elevate themselves a little.' But when I am in need of that, I hope someone will tell me so. I hope some individual will apprise me of the fact. I wish you good morning, Mrs. Wall. Good morning, Mr. Solomon. I trust we shall meet under less melancholy auspices. 
when Mr. Trumbull had departed with a fine bow, Solomon, leaning forward, observed to his sister, You may depend, Jane, my brother has left that girl a lumping sum. Anybody would think so, from the way Mr. Trumbull talks, said Jane. Then, after a pause, he talks as if my daughter's wasn't to be trusted to give drops. Auctioneers talk wild, said Solomon. Not but what Trumbull has made money. Chapter 33 That night, after twelve o'clock, Mary Garth relieved the watch in Mr. Featherstone's room and sat there alone through the small hours. She often chose this task in which she found some pleasure, notwithstanding the old man's testiness whenever he demanded her attentions. There were intervals in which she could sit perfectly still, enjoying the outer stillness and the subdued light. The red fire with its gently audible movement seemed like a solemn existence calmly independent of the petty passions, the imbecile desires, the straining after worthless uncertainties, which were daily moving her contempt. Mary was fond of her own thoughts and could amuse herself well sitting in twilight with her hands in her lap, for, having early had strong reason to believe that things were not likely to be arranged for her peculiar satisfaction, she wasted no time in astonishment and annoyance at that fact. And she had already come to take life very much as a comedy in which she had a proud, nay, a generous resolution not to act the mean or treacherous part. Mary might have become cynical if she had not had parents whom she honored, and a well of affectionate gratitude within her, which was all the fuller because she had learned to make no unreasonable claims. She sat tonight revolving, as she was wont, the scenes of the day, her lips often curling with amusement at the oddities to which her fancy added fresh drollery. People were so ridiculous with their illusions, carrying their fool's caps unawares, thinking their own lies opaque while everybody else's were transparent, making themselves exceptions to everything, as if when all the world looked yellow under a lamp, they alone were rosy. Yet there were some illusions under Mary's eyes which were not quite comic to her. She was secretly convinced, though she had no other grounds than her close observation of old Featherstone's nature, that in spite of his fondness for having the Vincys about him, they were as likely to be disappointed as any of the relations whom he kept at a distance. She had a good deal of disdain for Mrs. Vincy's evident alarm lest she and Fred should be alone together, but it did not hinder her from thinking anxiously of the way in which Fred would be affected, if it should turn out that his uncle had left him as poor as ever. She could make a butt of Fred when he was present, but she did not enjoy his follies when he was absent. Yet she liked her thoughts. A vigorous young mind, not overbalanced by passion, finds a good in making acquaintance with life, and watches its own powers with interest. Mary had plenty of merriment within. Her thought was not veined by any solemnity or pathos about the old man on the bed. Such sentiments are easier to affect than to feel about an aged creature whose life is not visibly anything but a remnant of vices. She had always seen the most disagreeable side of Mr. Featherstone. He was not proud of her, and she was only useful to him. To be anxious about a soul that is always snapping at you must be left to the saints of the earth, and Mary was not one of them. She had never returned him a harsh word, and had waited on him faithfully. That was her utmost. Old Featherstone himself was not in the least anxious about his soul, and had declined to see Mr. Tucker on the subject. Tonight he had not snapped, and for the first hour or two he lay remarkably still, until at last Mary heard him rattling his bunch of keys against the tin box which he always kept in the bed beside him. About three o'clock, he said with remarkable distinctness, Missy, come here. Mary obeyed and found that he had already drawn the tin box from under the clothes, though he usually asked to have this done for him, 
and he had selected the key. He now unlocked the box and, drawing from it another key, looked straight at her with eyes that seemed to have recovered all their sharpness and said, How many of them are in the house? You mean of your own relations, sir, said Mary, well used to the old man's way of speech. He nodded slightly and she went on. Mr. Jonah Featherstone and young Cranch are sleeping here. Oh, aye, they stick, do they? And the rest, they come every day, I'll warrant. Solomon and Jane and all the young'uns, they come peeping and counting and casting up. Not all of them every day. Mr. Solomon and Mrs. Wall are here every day, and the others come often. The old man listened with a grimace while she spoke, and then said, relaxing his face, The more fools they. You hearken, Missy. It's three o'clock in the morning, and I've got all my faculties as well as I ever had in my life. I know all my property and where the money's put out and everything, and I've made everything ready to change my mind and do as I like at the last. Do you hear, Missy? I've got my faculties. Well, sir, said Mary, quietly. He now lowered his tone with an air of deeper cunning. I've made two wills, and I'm going to burn one. Now you do as I tell you. This is the key of my iron chest in the closet there. You push well at the side of the brass plate at the top till it goes like a bolt. Then you can put the key in the front lock and turn it. See and do that and take out the topmost paper. Last will and testament. Big printed. No, sir, said Mary in a firm voice. I cannot do that. Not do it? I tell you, you must, said the old man, his voice beginning to shake under the shock of this resistance. I cannot touch your iron chest or your will. I must refuse to do anything that might lay me open to suspicion. I tell you I'm in my right mind. Can't I do as I like at the last? I made two wills on purpose. Take the key, I say. No, sir, I will not, said Mary, more resolutely still. Her repulsion was getting stronger. I tell you, there's no time to lose. I cannot help that, sir. I will not let the close of your life soil the beginning of mine. I will not touch your iron chest or your will. She moved to a little distance from the bedside. The old man paused with a blank stare for a little while, holding the one key erect on the ring. Then with an agitated jerk, he began to work with his bony left hand at emptying the tin box before him. Missy, he began to say hurriedly, look here, take the money, the notes and gold, look here, take it. You shall have it all, do as I tell you. He made an effort to stretch out the key towards her as far as possible, and Mary again retreated. I will not touch your key or your money, sir. Pray, don't ask me to do it again. If you do, I must go and call your brother. He let his hand fall, and for the first time in her life, Mary saw old Peter Featherstone begin to cry, childishly. She said in as gentle a tone as she could command, Pray, put up your money, sir, and then went away to her seat by the fire hoping this would help to convince him that it was useless to say more. Presently he rallied and said eagerly, Look here, then. Call the young chap. Call Fred Vincy. Mary's heart began to beat more quickly. Various ideas rushed through her mind as to what the burning of a second will might imply. She had to make a difficult decision in a hurry. I will call him, if you'll let me call Mr. Jonah and others with him. Nobody else, I say. The young chap. I shall do as I like. Wait till broad daylight, sir, when everyone is stirring, or let me call Simmons now to go and fetch the lawyer. He can be here in less than two hours. Lawyer? What do I want with the lawyer? Nobody shall know. I say nobody shall know. I shall do as I like. Let me call someone else, sir, 
said Mary persuasively. She did not like her position, alone with the old man, who seemed to show a strange flaring of nervous energy, which enabled him to speak again and again without falling into his usual cough. Yet she desired not to push unnecessarily the contradiction which agitated him. Let me, pray, call someone else. You let me alone, I say. Look here, missy, take the money. You'll never have the chance again. It's pretty nigh two hundred. There's more in the box, and nobody knows how much there was. Take it and do as I tell you. Mary, standing by the fire, saw its red light falling on the old man, propped up on his pillows and bedrest, with his bony hand holding out the key and the money lying on the quilt before him. She never forgot that vision of a man wanting to do as he liked at the last, but the way in which he had put the offer of the money urged her to speak with harder resolution than ever. It is of no use, sir. I will not do it. Put up your money. I will not touch your money. I will do anything else I can to comfort you, but I will not touch your keys or your money. Anything else? Anything else? Said Old Featherstone with a hoarse rage, which, as if in a nightmare, tried to be loud and yet was only just audible. I want nothing else. You come here. You come here. Mary approached him cautiously, knowing him too well. She saw him dropping his keys and trying to grasp his stick, while he looked at her like an aged hyena, the muscles of his face getting distorted with the effort of his hand. She paused at a safe distance. Let me give you some cordial, she said quietly, and try to compose yourself. You will perhaps go to sleep, and tomorrow by daylight you can do as you like. He lifted the stick, in spite of her being beyond his reach, and threw it with a hard effort which was but impotence. It fell, slipping over the foot of the bed. Mary let it lie and retreated to her chair by the fire. By and by she would go to him with a cordial. Fatigue would make him passive. It was getting towards the chillest moment of the morning. The fire had got low, and she could see through the chink between the Maureen window curtains the light whitened by the blind. Having put some wood on the fire and thrown a shawl over her, she sat down, hoping that Mr. Featherstone might now fall asleep. If she went near him, the irritation might be kept up. He'd said nothing after throwing the stick, but she had seen him taking his keys again and laying his right hand on the money. He did not put it up, however, and she thought he was dropping off to sleep. But Mary herself began to be more agitated by the remembrance of what she'd gone through than she had been by the reality, questioning those acts of hers which had come imperatively and excluded all question in the critical moment. Presently, the dry wood sent out a flame which illuminated every crevice, and Mary saw that the old man was lying quietly with his head turned a little on one side. She went towards him with an audible steps and thought that his face looked strange motionless, but the next moment the movement of the flame communicating itself to all objects made her uncertain. The violent beating of her heart rendered her perceptions so doubtful that even when she touched him and listened for his breathing, she could not trust her conclusions. She went to the window and gently propped aside the curtain and blind so that the still light of the sky fell on the bed. The next moment she ran to the bell and rang it energetically. In a very little while there was no longer any doubt that Peter Featherstone was dead, with his right hand clasping the keys and his left hand lying on the heap and that of wraps notes up book and gold. three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. Next week we'll dive into book four, Three Love Problems. All reading materials and erroneous links are posted in the description as always. And I'll see you next week. Bye.